Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. Our guest on today's podcast is Dr. Russell James. Dr. James is a professor of charitable financial planning at Texas Tech University and is one of the foremost experts in charitable planning. His combined works are really a masterclass in philanthropic literacy. His charitable planning series that's available on YouTube is a compendium of best practices for donors, fundraisers, and advisors alike. Now, while Dr. James could address just about any charitable topic, our focus today is going to be on tactical strategies available to donors to increase their effectiveness and their engagement. But we're also going to take a look at how advisors and development officers can identify situations where a particular strategy can be utilized. Russell is an accomplished author, speaker, and well-respected teacher. And possibly his most impressive quality is his personal generosity when it comes to sharing his time, wisdom, and perspective. Dr. James is really unmatched. If you are interested in taking your philanthropy to the next level, I assure you this will be time well spent. And now I hope you'll join me in welcoming Dr. Russell James. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good afternoon, Professor James, and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. I thought we would start with a little background on yourself, and I know you have such a wide-ranging amount of content that's out there, both written and on the web. As you're telling us a little bit about yourself, do you have a favorite piece of content? Do you have a favorite topic that comes up that makes you really excited to talk about? I like to share my videos on YouTube there. If you just type in planned giving Russell James, uh, there's a 65 short uh, animated videos, about 15 minutes a piece that goes through all of the different techniques. And I've, I forced my students to uh, watch those and a few other people that aren't forced to do it also watch those. I think they're kind of helpful. If you want to pick up that kind of information, if you just say, hey, I'll do 15 minutes a day, give it a couple of months and uh, you'll actually have exposure to a broad range of techniques. So that's probably my favorite. And then one of your basic theories is that the, the plan giving concept leads to larger gifts. You talk about the cash bucket being the bucket that a lot of plan giving development officers are really marketing toward. And that's also the bucket that many donors are utilizing. How do you get somebody to change their mindset from that cash bucket to the asset bucket? You make a good point, and we see this in a lot of different results where if you can get a donor to change their mindset from giving as something that comes from pocket change, disposable income, to giving as something that comes from wealth. In other words, if you can get them to think of their wealth as donation relevant, that can really be a game changer. And in many ways, in terms of how do you change that perspective, it's a little bit like on a smaller scale, the first time you make a gift to a charity shop of, say, your household items, maybe you're moving or redecorating, whatever it might be. From that point forward, every time you've got extra furniture or other types of household items, 
what comes to mind. Charity comes to mind because, oh, yes, I remember the time before when that's where we took the things that we didn't need. I don't have time to hassle with eBay and all of that, so, so I'll just do that. Well, in the same way, the first time donor makes a gift of, say, appreciated stocks. And they realize, wait a second, I didn't have to pay any capital gains taxes. Aside from the deduction and other things like that, that can then transform that asset class as becoming donation relevant. And then the next time the donor is approaching a situation where they're going to have a realization event, where they're going to be subject to all of these capital gains taxes, what comes to mind? Well, well, charity can come to mind. And really, that's the core idea using appreciated assets that leads to all of these sort of super complex and advantageous charitable planning opportunities. And so for the advisors and the development officers out there, if we can get our clients or potential donors to just think about their net worth as the source of their overall donation or as the source of their overall giving, as opposed to the cash flow component, we get them to do that once. And that is, sounds like that establishes a habit that is pretty easily establishable. I mean, because I, I could think the first time we donated closed to Goodwill. I mean, you're right. The, the very next thing is that. And a lot of our clients who have done asset giving don't come back to us and ask to give cash anymore once they've given assets. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and as a matter of behavioral finance, it changes the reference point for the gift. I teach a graduate course on behavioral finance. And one of the things we see again and again in these sort of weird results we get in behavioral finance is that people often make their decisions not based upon the absolute level of an outcome, but rather it's based upon a relative level. And that relative level is compared to a reference point or, or a comparison point. You know, what somebody else has done, what I've done in the past, what my goals are. And in the same way, this changes the reference point when wealth becomes donation relevant. And that change can be transformational. I'll give you another example from a, a nationally representative study looking at adults over age 50 that's been going on for more than 30 years now. One of the really transformational things that can happen for a donor is to include charity in their estate plan. Now, this isn't about what happens after they die. It's actually about what happens to their current giving after they include charity into the estate plan. And what we see is that on average, current giving goes up 77%. And that spike is actually sustained two, four, six, even eight years later. And so I think what we're seeing is that same effect where for many people, the first time they ever commit to a charitable gift out of their wealth is that gift in a will or gift in an estate plan. Because I can tell you, regardless of its size, a gift in a will is not a gift of disposable income. It's a gift of wealth. And again, that shift in mindset we see has a very strong result in terms of current giving. And that's one thing we've noticed even in our practice is that getting someone to commit to that estate gift can be difficult, even if they practice annual giving. And what's always struck me is that here's a person who's been charitable throughout their entire life. And yet their estate documents, when we look at them, they've chosen to be non-charitable at death. And just having that conversation is an interesting one. In most cases, we just find that people just think it's a lot harder than it actually is to include a charity in their estate. Is that kind of what you found as well? Or is it yeah, you know, in, more the, difficult than that. in terms of behavior, we actually see both 
unusual behaviors. We see, for example, people who are consistent donors, um, minimum of $500 a year, only about 10% of them actually have charity in their estate plans. Now, you reverse that, and a lot of the charitable estate gifts, even very large charitable estate gifts, come from people who actually never gave to the organization during life. And so one of the things we see from a lot of experimental research is that whenever you remind people of their mortality, the technical term is a mortality salient decision environment. It actually is a completely different decision-making environment, and it really changes people's values and preferences in that death-related context. And so we see that in terms of their choices being very different in this area as compared to their regular giving. So it is a fascinating When you refer to to the autobiographical concept that registers in the brain of a donor, uh, is, is that what we're referring to here? Sure. So that connects in the way that The most powerful charitable estate gift is one that continues my identity. That might be my life story, my values, uh, connects in with my people. And whenever we can do that, makes it very attractive and powerful. Another example, when we looked at a variety of different plan giving techniques that had some estate component to it, and we were looking at what was the best way to describe these, to get people interested in these techniques, it turns out that if we added on to the description a kind of a magic phrase, it really bumped up interest. And the magic phrase was, instead of just asking about, would you like to make a gift in your will to charity? It was, would you like to make a gift in your will to charity to support causes that have been important in your life? Well, that phrase triggers that life review process. Oh, what what causes have been important in my life? And understanding that there's a connection between a cause and my life story then dramatically increases the share of people who are interested in those kinds of gifts. So absolutely, that autobiographical connections are very important for the estate gift decision. And you talk about another phrase or magical phrase in your writing. It's, I I wish I could do more, but. And when you hear that phrase from the donor, let's focus on some of those buts, because I think anybody who spends a great deal of effort trying to work through these issues is going to hear that. Wish I could do more, but I need income. You hear that. Or I'm concerned I might outlive my assets. Exactly. And for folks that have spent some time to learn some of the plan giving techniques, that's the magic phrase because it allows you to then understand that this is a person who wants to have a charitable impact, but something is standing in the way and that something is typically financial. So once you can identify what that is, then there's lots of different techniques to address that need or that concern. So we can start very simple. I wish I could do more, but there's a financial objection. One of the very first things we could do is to say, I certainly understand. I've worked with other people in your situation that have decided to include a gift in their estate plan. That way they don't have to worry about needing the money right now, and it can go up and down depending upon how their size of their estate goes up and down and no upfront costs, but allows them to, in many cases, make a really substantial long-term impact on the causes that they care about. So that's the very 
first example of saying there's still a way that you can make an impact, even if there is uh, some financial barrier. Other ways, obviously, we can increase tax benefits. We have a variety of techniques that also have income benefits or income benefits to uh, other family members, either now or in the estate planning process. And again, it can get as complicated as you have time to uh, dive into it. I do teach two semester long courses on the law and tax issues involved here. But the point is, if we start with what matters to the client, what matters to the donor, and then recognize that this financial issue is a barrier, that's where we can get creative with the various techniques that help move around that financial barrier. One of the gateway techniques that we utilize, and I think you refer to it really as a charitable swap, whereby you have a client that has a specific charitable intention. Maybe they want to give $100,000 and they actually have $100,000 in cash to give, but they also have $100,000 in appreciated assets. Can you talk through when you mentioned the term charitable swap, if you were going to describe that to somebody in that situation, how that plays out and why that's important? Sure, absolutely. It's really the very first of all the techniques that is important for the advisor to understand. Uh, so very simple case, as you say, a person's getting ready to write a check for $100,000. And we say, do you happen to have any appreciated securities that you might want to give instead? And the client says, well, yeah, I've got that shares of Apple stock, but I'm not really ready to sell those right now. I want to keep those in my portfolio. Actually, you don't have to change your portfolio at all. We just take those old shares of Apple stock that have all that gain in them. We give those to the charity. We use the cash that you are going to have given to the charity. And we immediately, at the same moment, in the same day, we purchase brand new shares of Apple stock. Now, you still have the same number of shares of Apple stock. It's just that you've wiped out all of the capital gain from those shares of stock in your portfolio. And because this is not lost property, we don't have to worry about the wash sale rule that would otherwise require us to wait a while before we repurchase those. In the past, this has been something that is a great way for donors, for clients to have their first experience with completely wiping out capital gains taxes. And in fact, from a financial planning perspective, Every time you've got a client who has these appreciated assets, marketable securities, every time they write a check to charity, that's just losing tax opportunities. However, I've got to say that has gone from a casual suggestion to maybe a suggestion with a deadline on it, because now we're getting all of this legislative talk about maybe eliminating the opportunity to do this, or right. maybe even eliminating the stepped up basis at death. And so now we're in a situation where we not only need to do it, we need to get on the ball with doing it. We need to make sure that folks who have these appreciated securities aren't just writing these substantial checks when they can instead make those gifts of appreciated assets, immediately replace them with identical appreciated assets if we're talking about marketable securities. And if let's say you're dealing with a charity, maybe it's your local church or synagogue and they don't know how to accept gifts of securities, no worries at all. Just send it to your donor advised fund, have the fund sell it, and then the fund can send them the check. Yeah. So if I'm comfortable with that concept of the charitable swap, but either I don't have all of my charitable intentions identified, or maybe I'm working with 
some of those smaller local charities that can't accommodate the charitable swap like somebody else could. That would be a great example of when we would institutionalize a donor advised fund and create the first part of that swap going into the donor advised fund. And then the, obviously the follow on grants go through that. When you're working with advisors and clients and representatives here, you've got a whole network of different types of people that you're working with. What's their opinion of donor advised funds and do they actually go out and target those or try to get individuals to take part in your experience? Yeah, obviously it's a political hot button issue and you can get people on different sides of not so much whether we should have them or not, but some of the rules, uh, payout obligations, all that sort of thing around them. So what I find is that if you have a person who wants to be helpful to donors, right, they want to show the donors, here's some smarter ways to give, then they love donor-advised funds because there's all sorts of great strategies that you can use with them. For example, obviously in 2018, we had the the standard exemptions went up. So fewer people are itemizing because fewer people are itemizing, fewer people can use the tax deductions like charitable tax deductions. Well, we can get around that by bunching. So if we've got a client with financial flexibility, we say, what are you expecting to give over the next five years? Let's pick a target year and let's just stuff all of that into the donor advised fund in that target year. We have a really large deduction in that year, which we can use. It's over the standard deduction and we can take a benefit from that. And then in the following years, we just take the standard deduction because then we'll just be paying out those gifts from the donor advised fund. So a lot of different, really creative ways we can use this. And there's even a a psychology as to why these kinds of techniques lead to more charitable giving. And fundamentally, it's because it makes the charitable giving more enjoyable. It makes it more enjoyable for two reasons. One is that I can enjoy my philanthropy at multiple periods of time. Uh, So I can enjoy it when I'm very generous because I've made this gift and the government's recognized it. I get this large tax deduction. I'm generous as I'm managing the money and I'm looking at how my charitable fund is growing over time. And then I'm generous for the third time, essentially, when I actually transfer those assets and make a charitable impact. Now, again, from a behavioral finance perspective, you contrast that expansion in the amount of good feelings of being generous with the reduction in the perceived cost at each level, at each point. (laughs) So for example, when I make that transfer into the donor advice fund, I've made a gift, but I still control the money, right? I, I still hold it. I can still invest it. I can still decide. So I haven't, it's not quite as painful because it's still kind of something that I can influence. And then at the next step, when I transfer it out to the charity, it doesn't affect my personal finances because I can't consume any of it. I can't use any of it. And so if some emergency comes up, certainly during what was happening with COVID, we saw this massive outflow of funds from donor advised funds. And again, it's much less painful to do it. Whereas in a normal circumstance, if the economy was going crazy, we've got all of this uncertainty, I might get really sensitive about making a gift during that time. But not if I'm making a gift out of my donor advised fund, because I can't use that personally. So it doesn't help my personal finances at that point. So it makes people much more generous at that second step to be able to move that money out. So actually breaking that up into those separate steps at the higher end of the wealth spectrum, 
likely using a private family foundation, but at the moderate levels to use the donor advice fund that actually increases generosity really for behavioral finance reasons as much as for tax and other kinds of benefits. You talk about those three points of engagement, and we've noticed it in dealing with couples. We may have a mission-driven partner who's married to a structure-driven partner. The the structure-driven partner gets an inordinate amount of excitement about the tax deduction and all of the other things that go along with the charitable giving. It's the being able to invest the money and give more and getting all the tax deductions while the mission partner is really focused on the underlying causes. And what we found is one of those things that's one of those hidden benefits of the donor advice fund is it allows those two people to actually enjoy the same enjoy the same vehicle or enjoy the same transaction for altogether different reasons. But we found that it's a hidden benefit that doesn't get talked about a lot, but can be pretty important from a behavioral standpoint, obviously. Yeah, that's a great observation. It's really cool that you're seeing that in person. It actually connects with something that we sometimes will see not only between two people and their two different orientations, but even within the same person, that the charitable decision is often this two-stage decision. It has to start with kind of the social emotional side where I can, I have this social emotional relevant vision of the impact that I want to make. And so that drives my motivation to make a gift, but a gift doesn't result just from motivation. It results from the intersection of motivation and cost. And so some of these other technical components, we can work on the cost side. Now, we don't start with the cost side because if your only goal is to die with as much money as you can, you would never make a gift to anyone for any reason. (laughs) Right. You're you're not in the charitable market in the first place. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But once we've established that socially, emotionally compelling motivation, then we can start dealing with, okay, how do we actually make this happen from the cost side? So those two different components, they actually deal with two different parts of the brain. And uh, we can talk about system one and system two. We can talk about the emotion side versus the math logic error detection side. But you certainly see people with different orientations, but even within the same person, you get a bit of these two orientations. And the trick is the sequencing that you uh, do on those. You want to start with that social emotional impact. And then once the person wants to make that impact, then let's figure out what's the best way to make this happen. And so when you get somebody and they've gone through their mission and the social aspects of why they want to give, and they feel really confident in that, and then they've progressed from giving just cash to thinking about it in giving assets and including in the estate, and they've progressed down this down this just level of progression that now they have a donor advised fund. And then they start thinking about a split interest giving, maybe a charitable lead trust for those people who have a taxable estate and they want to take advantage of low interest rates and and possibly pass on a large amount to the next generation. Can you talk to us just a little bit about those different, the charitable lead trust, charitable remainder trust, when they come into play and when you see people actually graduating into those strategies and actually adopting them instead of just being turned off by the complexity of it? Sure. It is a real challenge in this field that if you actually want to have conversations that motivate actions, a lot of time that has to start with a story. It's got to be a story of someone like the client 
who has made a gift like this uh, in the past. So it creates the idea that people like me do things like this. And so creating that social norm by sharing a story of what another person like the client you're talking to has done can be uh, really uh, powerful. And you're absolutely right. Because the interest rates are so low right now, there are some, some very special opportunities. Let me start with a really underutilized opportunity that just gives you an example as to how powerful the interest rates are. Let's say you've got a client who wants to leave a charitable estate gift. If they happen to have farmland or uh, even uh, personal residences, second home, or could even be a boat with the sleeping and cooking facilities, if they have that kind of real estate that they're willing to give away the inheritance rights to, if you do that with a deed, it's called a retained life estate deed, you can actually get an immediate income tax deduction for the value of that inheritance rights. Now, the reason you get an immediate income tax deduction is because you can't change your mind. Now, this is something where the interest rates make it dramatically different in terms of its power. Just as a quick example, if we were back in the really high interest rates, say back in the 1980s, if you have, let's say, a 55-year-old donor who gives the inheritance rights to $100,000 of farmland, okay, that's going to create, in a high interest rate environment, it's going to create a charitable deduction worth about $20,000, okay? In a low interest rate environment, like what we had a year ago, that same gift is going to create a charitable deduction of over $90,000, $100,000 in inheritance rights or the inheritance rights to $100,000 of land, and you immediately get a $90,000 deduction. Now, right now, we're right around the $80,000 level because the interest rates bumped up a little bit, came back down, and these are really powerful techniques right now. So you can double, triple, even quadruple the size of the tax deduction you're getting based purely on interest rates. Now, I mentioned that because that's a technique that anyone can use. And are these the applicable federal rates? Are they yes. the 7520 rates? Which rates are govern these transactions? They're all connected. It's the 7520 rate, which is the round number. So right now we're at 1.0% and you can use the current month or either of the previous two months. You pick your most favorable rate and use that for the transaction. Now, the reason that those rates are powerful in an estate tax context. So this is somebody who's got a large enough enough estate, which depending on what Congress does, that may be changing soon, but somebody who has a large enough estate that they're worried about estate tax consequences, you can use a charitable lead trust. Now, let's say you have somebody that's already making donations. Okay. What we do is we take an asset, we set it aside, put it into this charitable lead trust, and it is that trust that then makes the donations to the charity over, say, the next 10 or 20 years. Okay. Whatever's left over at the end, goes to the kids, right? Pretty straightforward. The idea though, is that when you put that asset into the trust at the beginning, you immediately pay gift taxes on what is projected to be left over at the end. Now, if your actual growth- Projected based on the 75-20 rate. Exactly. So if your actual growth exceeds what now is 1.0%, that is the initial 75-20 rate, then all of that growth goes to the family completely estate tax-free. 
So typically these are set up, it's called a zeroed out clat, where you say, all right, I'm going to be making, maybe it's $50,000 a year worth of donations. I'll go ahead and I'll take this asset. I'll put it into this trust. It's going to fund those $50,000 worth of donations for the next 20 years. And in fact, I'm going to put the right amount in there so that if I actually did earn just 1% a year, then at the end of those 20 years, what's going to be left over is exactly zero dollars. So what that means is when I put that asset into the trust, I pay zero dollars of gift taxes because that's what's projected to be left over at the end. Now, to the extent that any of that growth exceeds the one percent, that's what we currently are looking at with the 7520 interest rates. All of that growth goes to the family completely estate and gift tax free. So the point is, if you've got a client who's already being charitable and they have the financial flexibility, this is kind of a no cost chance to make uh, completely tax free transfers to family members when we go ahead and set it up in advance with the charitable lead trust. And so in terms of numbers, the number of charitable lead trusts is is pretty small relative to the universe as a whole, right? But the actual dollar amount in those charitable lead trusts is pretty high, right? Yeah, exactly. It's going to be larger amounts because these are only for high net worth clients, right? If you're not in an estate tax situation, this doesn't make any sense for the most part. So you are dealing with larger amounts there. It's also a more rare instrument. So as compared to the charitable remainder trust, for example, those are much more common, but they're also a lot smaller. Charitable lead trusts, less common, but they tend to be very, very large. And in fact, charities tend to like them more because it means they're getting cash in the door right away and it's guaranteed cash. So they're very happy with those instruments. I should mention, and this can create a lot of confusion. There is in fact another instrument also called a charitable lead trust, and that is used for a completely different purpose. And the difference is that you can set up a charitable lead trust that comes back to the donor at the end, does not go to the donor's family members. That's an estate tax planning strategy. But actually, you can set up the same kind of a trust where that asset, whatever you put in there, whatever's left at the end, comes back to the donor. So this is a grantor charitable lead trust. And we actually use this for income tax planning purposes. In other words, you can take an immediate income tax deduction for the next 20 years worth of those donations. And you can take that deduction right now today. And the value of that deduction, again, depends upon the Section 7520 interest rate. The lower the interest rate, the bigger that deduction is. So if you've got a situation where you want a big tax deduction right now, that can be a, an effective strategy. And there's organizations that actually do a high volume of these, so you can do them with a fairly a small amount. Now, I once had a person say, why wouldn't I just do a donor-advised fund? Because I get 100% tax deduction for that. Well, the reason is you don't get your asset back with the donor-advised fund. <laughs> right. So if, if you want something where you do want the asset back, but you want an immediate income tax deduction, then the grantor charitable lead trust, which it, you can do with a relatively small amount of money, is also an available technique that, again, takes advantage of the... So not, to over, not to oversimplify this, but if somebody's already in a situation where they have a taxable estate, mm-hmm. they're looking at tax legislation, and nobody knows exactly where it's going to go, but if the projected trick is that gift and estate tax exclusions are going to go down, not up, and interest rates are going to remain low. All three of those things are in an environment that would lend someone to at least consider a CLT. 
Yeah, exactly. And and certainly some of the other techniques, such as putting appreciated assets into a charitable remainder trust that doesn't pay the charity income for that the set number of years, but pays you income for the rest of your life for a set number of years. The conversation about eliminating those in terms of their ability to use appreciated assets with them might also motivate some action rather than simply putting it off indefinitely. Yeah. And so let's talk about in a charitable remainder trust situation, I mean, donors transferring appreciated assets and they're, they're getting income from that unreduced value, which is the real difference in, in that and just generating income after you sell the asset. Yes. In general, you're trading this flexibility for complexity on some level. Can you explain to just the general listeners out there how this is better than just drawing income from the assets and simply naming a charity in your will? Sure, absolutely. There's a couple of reasons why it can be uh, much more powerful. One is you take your asset, you sell it with no capital gains tax. That's because you don't sell it. It's actually your charitable remainder trust, which is a charitable entity that sells it. And since it's a charitable entity, it pays no upfront capital gains tax. Then you take a payment off of that. And that's typically a percentage of everything that's in the trust. You take that payment for the rest of your life or joint lives, however you want to set it up. Now that means that as you grow that portfolio, you can still manage those assets, invest those assets. As that gets bigger, your annual payments get bigger or quarterly, monthly, however you want to to set it up. So the first advantage is you can sell that highly appreciated asset with no capital gains tax up front. You can invest the entire amount and you can get income off of that unreduced amount that you are investing. Another reason why these are powerful is you immediately get a really large income tax deduction from making that transfer. Now, that income tax deduction is based upon at the end of your life, whatever's left over then goes to whatever your charitable destination is, a particular charity, a private foundation, donor advice fund, whatever it is that you pick. So you also get an immediate income tax deduction. On top of that, you get a third benefit, which is the same benefit that we get from a traditional IRA, which is that any growth that happens inside the charitable remainder trust, there's no taxes on that. The only taxes we pay are on the payments that come out of the trust. And so that can be very powerful with this year over year growth that accumulates inside the trust, just like with the traditional IRA, our year over year growth accumulates without any uh, taxation. We only get taxed when we pull the money out of the trust to use it, just like when we pull money out of a traditional that almost seems to be a forgotten benefit in the CRT. Uh, it, yeah, it is. talked about all that much. It is. And if you want to get really wonky, I'll tell you the fourth benefit, which is the tax deduction you get is much larger than it ought to be. And the reason is that tax deduction assumes you're going to live an average lifespan. Here's the reality. Sick people don't set up annuities. That's why we (laughs) don't use the same life tables for annuity purchasers. You cut off the left tail. Exactly. So people actually live massively longer than they're projected to. It's also because charitable people live longer, wealthy people live longer. So the tax deduction ends up being a lot larger than if we were using actuarially appropriate measurements. So lots of benefits from those techniques. And right now, a lot of conversations conversation about taking away that ability to use appreciated assets to fund these kinds of trusts. Uh, So it might be something you want to look into sooner rather than later. 
And what about foundations? At what point or circumstance does a family want to consider a private foundation? Sure. There's advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage is a lot more paperwork. You're certainly going to have annual tax filings and meetings, various other things like that that come along with it. Also, the deductions that you get from making those gifts, they can't wipe out as much of your income as the deductions from gifts that are going to either public charities or to a donor-advised fund, which is also treated as a public charity for most purposes. Those are some it just dis- come down to how actively involved you want to be and, and really the causes you want to select at the end of the day? Yeah. Yeah. And also how much money is involved. Now, there are some things you can do with the private foundation that you cannot do with a donor advised fund. So for example, you can have family members hired to perform necessary professional services for the private foundation, as long as it's a reasonable cost. You can, in fact, say if you have insiders, if you have family members, you want to bring them in for an annual board meeting, the costs associated with that kind of travel or travel to investigate potential grantees, as long as everything's reasonable and necessary, you can actually make those kind of direct transfers to insiders, to family members. Donor advised fund, you can't do any of that. And so a lot of it depends, again, on the size of the the amounts that you're planning to put into that. And also with the goals. One of the ideas is that if I want to make a substantial charitable impact that lives beyond me, well, the private foundation, I can set up the rules and whoever's running that, they have to follow my rules. If I care about cats or the environment or whatever, I can set this up and say, no, this money has to be used for these purposes. Got it. And so do you find that people use, for instance, might use a CLT in combination with the foundation? Once they decide there's a real family purpose for having it and they, they want to set those rules going forward or they want they have buy-in and involvement from all the family and and they have enough assets to make it happen. You find those two things coordinating with each other very often? Yeah, absolutely. So what we see is that once you get into these complex techniques, you see how they can stack together, whether it's a charitable lead trust or it may be a charitable remainder trust, right? The idea is that, okay, I'm getting this income for life and uh, investing these assets, but at the end, whatever's left over goes to charity. But maybe I want that charity to to be my own private family foundation that my family, uh, after I'm gone, is going to run and manage and uh, can even be hired to perform services for and all of these other sorts of benefits. So absolutely, we can start stacking these techniques so we can keep this money in what amounts to a tax-free environment for an extended or even multi-generational period of time. And so you can really build that kind of long-term wealth that is more resistant to the the spendthrift air that otherwise might come along and say, oh, I don't care. I'm just going to spend it all now. Not really that motivational when they can't really spend it on themselves. It's only uh, being able to spend it for other people's benefit on charitable causes, more likely to see that wealth staying intact. And of course, we actually see that all around us. The reverse of those three engagement positives, it's the three engagement bummers. I could spend money, but I don't get any of it. Exactly. And we do see these uh, private foundations that were set up a century ago that are still, you know, whether it's the Ford Foundation or various others that are still around and making a substantial. My university friends would frown on me if I didn't at least bring up the charitable gift annuity in the discussion. If we have clients or if there are people out there that are wanting to support a university or any institution, I guess, particularly if they've already named that institution in their will, 
and with interest rates being as low as they are, what's the downside to them doing a charitable gift annuity and drawing income from that annuity as opposed to having it sit in the bank until their state gives it over to the university or the organization? Sure. There are a number of both financial and in some ways also psychological advantages to the charitable gift annuity. Basic idea is, and again, you're right, you want to use the university, some very financially stable organization, and you say, here's a large gift, give me back lifetime income. And that lifetime income could be for one or or, uh, two lives. And Uh, and unlike the CRT, the institution is really in charge of managing the whole thing, right? Yes. So if you have a client who doesn't want their income to be changing or running out, then the charitable gift annuity at a large stable institution can make sense. With the charitable remainder trust, things are great if your investments are great. But if we put it all into Enron and then it disappears, then so does your annuity. Whereas the chances that Harvard is going to close their doors or, sorry, University of Texas, I'm still angry about the Big 12 thing, so it's hard for me to mention that. But it's unlikely that UT is going to shut their doors. So consequently, you get a very high level of security in terms of that lifetime income. Now, let's talk about some of the benefits of that. One of the benefits of that is that if you fund that gift annuity by, again, giving appreciated assets, that capital gains tax, we can delay that. So that's actually broken out over my life expectancy rather than I sell it. I've got a big tax bill right now. It's also the case that if you have a client who is not going to be using the charitable tax deduction, the low interest rate environment actually makes gift annuities more attractive because a larger share of each annuity payment is going to count as return of principal for me. In other words, it's going to be tax-free. And so that's based upon the interest rates. The lower the interest rate, like we are now, each of those payments, a larger share is going to be tax-free coming back to me. Now, the other part, a little harder to wrap your mind around, but it's actually psychological. And as you know, from a purely economic perspective, you talk to any economics professors, personal finance professors, they're going to say people don't use annuities as much as they should. And the idea being that it's a great risk that you might have this tail risk that you're going to live way longer than you expected. You don't need to, you could spend a lot more if you had this certainty of knowing uh, what your income is going to be, regardless of how long you live. But people tend not to purchase annuities. There's a psychological reason for that. And remember, I mentioned how these death-related decisions, end-of-life-related decisions, completely different decision-making context. But it turns out the experimental literature shows that when people are thinking about an annuity, it makes them think about their own death. Because an annuity is a bet on how long you're going to live, right? If you take out a standard annuity, you don't want to go get hit by a bus immediately after that because that That's was kind a of a bad proposition. Yeah. <laughs> that was a bad investment. So if you think of it, here's an investment where whenever we put people in this end of life frame of mind, what they want is they want permanence, something that's going to reflect their values that lives on after them. And what we offer them is a product that disappears when they do. So this psychological conflict makes it really hard for people to invest in annuity because you're reminding them that they're going to die and you're offering them a product that disappears when they do. 
Well, the charitable gift annuity resolves that issue by saying this is a way that you can make an impact where your values will continue to make an impact even beyond your life because of the impact that this gift annuity will have at your uh, favorite charity. So you can uh, live on through that impact that will that will happen after your life. So it's one of the reasons why psychologically a charitable gift annuity can be more attractive. And then from the institutional level, just to take a step back, let's assume that I decide to make a $1 million gift through a gift annuity to a university. How much of that money can they actually utilize once I commit to that gift? So it depends upon what state they're in and what state you're in. So we have an enormous range of approaches to regulation. We've got some states, California, New York, that not only want the charity or require the charity to have a separate fund that has the actuarially appropriate amount held in that fund. They also require an extra bonus amount on top of that just in case. And then you've got other states that say, no, it's just a general obligation of the charity. And so they can do whatever they want with it. They could spend it all now and then just worry about it in the future. However, what we see in the actual behavior of charities is that the way these are managed is the most extreme conservative approach. They actually just keep the full amount in a separate account until the person passes away. And then whatever the residual is, that's the point at which they would they would use that. So they wouldn't even use it like an endowment. They wouldn't even take partial Typically you know, not. It, it's very unusual to see organizations using that. The most common approach is simply to set it aside and treat it basically like an estate gift. And it's an estate gift of an undetermined amount. It depends on how long the person lives. Sure. But the idea is just hold on to the entire amount until it's released. Well, Professor James, I think I kept you a little bit over time, but I really appreciate the time. And I don't know if you know this or not, but my daughter graduated from Texas Tech uh, University. Now, she was not a charitable financial planning member, but her senior project was on charitable planning. And she did a book called The Donor is the Hero. Wow. And you were nice enough to sit with her for about an hour and a half, I think she told me. And, and she ended up getting an A and graduating. So... Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. My daughter's a senior here at Texas Tech this year, hoping that she'll have an equally successful uh, conclusion as well. So that's so neat to hear. Thanks for mentioning yeah, that. Congratulations for you and, and your so giving of your time and your talent. And we all appreciate that very much. Thank you for joining us. Happy to help. Thanks so much for having me. And that concludes our podcast on transforming your charitable giving with Professor Russell James. Professor James, thank you so much for joining us. So much great stuff here. It's really hard to summarize it all, but I think the themes that kind of played out most during the podcast are that making our net worth donation relevant is really a key mindset shift. It's a start of transforming your giving. And the other key thing to remember is our planned gifts are most powerful when they continue our life story. Planned and estate giving is not about an end. It's about a continuance. But timing is as important as mindset in maximizing our philanthropy. In our current environment, we have low interest rates combined with the potential for reduced estate tax exemptions and the potential for higher income tax rates. All those things combined provide an ideal environment for exploring a wide range of charitable strategies. 
I hope you enjoyed our conversation and thank you for engaging with us. Please rate us online, follow us on social media, and check out our new resources tab on our website for access to all of our recent content. And remember, we can only do our best work when you are here to listen. Thank you.